Today, I'm doing an update on my favorite topic that flies in the face of nutritional dogma, and that is intermittent fasting. Tune in to hear the most recent findings only here on the People Scientist Podcast. listening to The People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 104, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all be a little bit smarter and healthier with every episode. How are you doing today? I hope that with today's episode, I can spark some interest or some new thoughts in your mind. Now, for today's episode, I've covered the topic of intermittent fasting a few times on this show already. I first introduced it in episode four, and then I did an update episode and episode 28. And then I spoke about it specifically in the context of intestinal or gut health, 10 episodes back in episode 95. And I really wanted to do a general update episode on the topic of intermittent fasting for two reasons. Number one, because so many clinical trials and studies are being published rather quickly on this topic and some new ones have indeed been published since episode 95. And the second reason is because I typically do not like to give my opinion on this podcast. I try my best to be very unbiased and just to share the facts and evidence. But I will say that I think intermittent fasting is the one thing that has flipped the nutrition world on its head. So I like to talk about it because it is something that has completely challenged the dogma of nutritionists and dietitians. It has challenged a long-standing dogma of decades because we were taught for so long that we should eat every three to four hours in order to keep our metabolism up, in order to get our nutrients in. And if we go longer in between meals, that it was feared that our metabolic rate would drop, that we may gain weight, or that it could lead us to binging on food, or that we wouldn't get enough of our nutrients. That was what we were taught in university in the nutrition department by experts. But the scientific data in the last five years has completely challenged that thought and rather provides insight that going longer in between meals may result in many benefits to metabolic health and overall health, that in fact we need that time where we aren't eating so that our body can go into a fasted, recycling, rebuilding state. So today for episode 104, I'm going to provide a brief update episode on a handful of recent studies and the evidence that they add to what we already know about intermittent fasting. So if you haven't already listened to episode 4, 28, or 95 yet, I encourage you to go back and give them a listen. Particularly episode 28, I think, is a good one. So, as we always do, let's start off with some core takeaways. In the last several months, a few key studies have been published on intermittent fasting. 
Now, as a brief reminder, fasting indicates a period of time in which we do not consume calories or components or ingredients that would shift our metabolism into a metabolically fed state. So in clinical trials, often a fasted state is a time of just consuming water. Some protocols allow individuals to consume water or black coffee, black tea, green tea, or carbonated water during their fasting period. Now, the most studied protocol for fasting is called alternate day fasting, where one will fast for a day, then the next day they'll eat, then the next day they'll fast, then the next day they eat, and so on. There's also another very popular protocol called time-restricted eating, where we eat every day, but just in a shorter time frame. For example, that we eat all of our day's calories within a four to six hour window, allowing us a 16 to 20 hour fast every day. Recently in preclinical studies, there is some very high quality evidence to indicate that fasting can reduce breast cancer growth, could increase the effectiveness of chemotherapy drugs against cancer, that fasting can lower blood pressure, and beneficially impact our gut microbiome and intestinal health. In recent clinical trials, fasting while undergoing chemotherapy treatment for breast cancer appears safe and tolerable, may beneficially impact the metabolic profile of individuals undergoing chemotherapy treatment, that fasting may provide benefit to blood cholesterol and triglyceride levels, may make a weight loss regimen more effective or manageable, and may impart benefits to intestinal health. In previous episodes, I also spoke to benefits for reducing inflammation, the risk of dementia, and more. So I do encourage you to go back to listen to those previous episodes. Now, let's get into the details of those recent studies. In the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism this year, a meta-analysis was published to determine if intermittent fasting could impact metabolic health in individuals living with type 2 diabetes. So a meta-analysis is like a gold standard study that pools together several similar clinical trials in order to have one final answer as to whether a treatment is effective or not. So in this particular meta-analysis, the scientists pooled together seven different clinical trials with nearly 350 people. The scientists concluded that compared to a standard low-calorie diet, that intermittent fasting for 16 to 20 hours a day, so it's more like time-restricted eating, was able to reduce body weight more by nearly 2 kilograms or 4.4 pounds but did not necessarily impart more benefit to blood glucose levels or that long-term measurement of blood glucose, HbA1c, or glycated hemoglobin. So this is a really interesting meta-analysis because it indicates that intermittent fasting may be a more effective strategy than just a low-calorie diet for weight loss. And that could be because intermittent fasting might be easier or more manageable for some individuals as opposed to eating and needing to prepare meals throughout the entirety of a day. In the end, we always need a calorie deficit, whether that be reducing the calories we consume or increasing the calories that we burn. But this meta-analysis indicates that intermittent fasting for individuals living with type 2 diabetes might be slightly more effective at helping them lose weight, but may not necessarily be more effective than a low-calorie diet for management of blood glucose. In the journal Circulation Research this year, she and colleagues published a really fascinating study in rats. The scientists aimed to understand if intermittent fasting could alter blood pressure 
and they hypothesize that any effect that might be seen on blood pressure might be related to the gut microbiome. It may surprise you to hear that our gut microbiome, so the living microorganisms in our intestines, that they could impact our overall health and even our heart health and blood pressure. But this study by Shi touches upon previous work showing that gut dysbiosis, meaning an unhealthy gut microbiome, may contribute to chronic high blood pressure. So our intestines could impact our heart health. Chronic high blood pressure is the greatest risk factor for stroke and a very large risk factor for heart attack. So the most important thing to keep in check for heart and brain health is our blood pressure. So in this study, the scientists determined that fasting every second day, so alternate day fasting, significantly changed the makeup of the gut microbiome and the plasma metabolome, meaning the metabolites circulating in the blood. This change to the gut microbiome was associated with the prevention of hypertension or chronic high blood pressure. They noted that in rats who had high blood pressure, they tended to have more proteobacteria and less bacteroidetes in their gut microbiota versus rats who fasted with normal blood pressure. What was really fascinating was how intermittent fasting and the gut microbiome benefited blood pressure. They realized that bile acids were the potential mediators. The scientists tried to increase bile acids in the blood through fasting or colic acid supplementation, and this actually resulted in a reduction in blood pressure. Now, bile acids in our blood hasn't really been given much attention, but these scientists realize that bile acids in our circulation can act as hormones to modulate cells in our vasculature or our blood vessels. Isn't that fascinating? So this study really helps us understand another layer, another mechanism as to how fasting might benefit our gut health, our intestinal health, and therefore the circulating molecules in our blood, and therefore parameters other parameters to our health, such as, such as our blood pressure. Okay, another really great study to come out in the last few months on fasting. This study was published in the journal Nature by CAFA and colleagues last year. So this was a high-quality study published in a top-tier journal. The scientists aimed to see if the effects of fasting could impart benefit on breast cancer. Now, I talked about in episode 4, in episode 28, how fasting may change our metabolic state to be in a breaking down mode versus a building mode. Now, this could be a benefit when we think of cancer. Fasting turns our body into a recycling mode, so to speak, where our body will scavenge damaged cells and recycle those damaged cell parts for energy or for the generation of new cells. Now, this is called autophagy. This can be an important process in the prevention of cancer, as cancer may be the result of damaged mutated cells that build up, that begin to multiply, which essentially turns into a tumor. So this study I'm about to share supports this notion that us being in a fasted state, for example, with lower insulin levels, lower glucose, lower leptin, lower IGF-1, etc., all markers of being in a fed state, if those are lower in a fasted state, that this may potentially reduce tumor growth and cause tumor regression. So this study by CAFA in the journal Nature was a very important study to be published because it is the first to combine mouse studies with a clinical trial that supports the concept that fasting might be a good additional complementary therapy to reduce breast cancer growth and help tumor regression to go into remission. 
For example, in a mouse model of breast cancer without any treatment, the volume or size of the tumor grew to 600 millimeters cubed. With chemotherapy drugs like tamoxifen, the tumor reduced to 200 millimeters cubed. So 600 without treatment down to 200 with chemotherapy. The fascinating thing, the tumor reduced in size to 200 millimeters cubed with fasting alone as well. So fasting was just as effective as chemotherapy drugs in this particular mouse study of breast cancer. But if fasting was combined with the chemotherapy drug, the tumor was less than 100 millimeters cubed. So again, with no treatment on board, the tumor was 600. With fasting or chemotherapy separate, 200 was the size. If you combine fasting with chemotherapy, less than 100 was the size of the tumor. So the combination of fasting with chemotherapy was the most effective strategy here. In addition, in this paper, they recruited 36 women with breast cancer to assess the safety and feasibility of fasting while undergoing chemotherapy treatment. The authors note that the results are promising, that the women safely could follow time-restricted eating, meaning eating our day's calories within a shorter time frame, like within four to six hours every day. The scientists noted some benefits to markers in the patient's blood that indicated a benefit of fasting, such as lowered blood glucose, lower serum IGF-1, leptin, and C-peptide, while increasing circulating ketone bodies. I feel like with the increasing amount of preclinical data coming out and soon more clinical data, that fasting will very likely become a standard practice during chemotherapy, particularly if the patient can tolerate it. And this study supports that notion. To add to this, Ditano in Nature Communications, again a great a great journal, published a study how vitamin C combined with fasting could be of benefit for a specific type of cancer, which is crass mutated cancers in colorectal cancer. Now, their data supports the idea that fasting combined with vitamin C represents a promising low-toxicity intervention to be tested in randomized clinical trials against colorectal cancer and possibly against other types of these crass mutated cancers. This study was limited to cell culture and mouse models, so we do need to keep that in mind. And the amount of vitamin C they received was quite high at 4 grams per kilogram body weight. That's quite high for a human, as the maximum dose suggested by the Institute of Medicine for vitamin C is 2 grams for individuals, if ingested orally. But in this particular mouse study, where they noted fasting and vitamin C reduced cancer growth, the high dose of vitamin C was injected peritoneally. So it begs the question if a vitamin C intravenous infusion could become a standard practice with fasting and cancer treatment. Perhaps. Perhaps fasting with a daily intravenous infusion of vitamin C will become a new practice for cancer treatment to be combined with chemotherapy treatment as well. But more research needs to be conducted to see if that is effective and tolerated in humans. But so far, it looks like the combination of fasting and vitamin C is quite effective in reducing cancer growth in mice. And in that previous clinical trial I shared that fasting with chemotherapy seems to be safe and tolerated in women undergoing chemotherapy treatment for breast cancer. Mang in the journal Nutrition published a meta-analysis this year to determine if fasting could alter the blood lipid profile, meaning blood triglycerides and cholesterol levels, which are risk factors for heart disease and stroke. 
The scientists combined over 30 clinical trials to have a final answer if does fasting impart any benefit to cholesterol or triglycerides. Their conclusion? Yes. Total cholesterol dropped by on average 7 milligrams per deciliter. LDL cholesterol, which could potentially turn into oxidized LDL, which can lead to clogged arteries or atherosclerosis. With intermittent fasting, that decreased by just over 6 milligrams per deciliter. Triglycerides dropped by nearly 6.5 milligrams per deciliter. So these are great benefits seen to the lipid profile with intermittent fasting. HDL cholesterol, which is seen as a good cholesterol, appeared to not change with intermittent fasting. So overall, it appears that a fasting protocol of different kinds, whether that's time-restricted eating or alternate day fasting, seems to beneficially impact the blood cholesterol or triglyceride levels. Just this month in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, Sue and colleagues published a clinical trial in which they took blood and fecal samples from individuals practicing Ramadan fasting. Now, Ramadan is a tradition practiced by individuals of Islamic faith in which they fast during the daylight for a month. Now, depending on where you live, the length of time of daylight will vary, but most will fast from food and drink for approximately 14 to 16 hours every day. So they may consume their calories in less than an 8 to 10 hour window typically. The scientists noted marked changes to the gut microbiome with the intermittent fasting, but these changes disappeared when the individuals returned back to their normal pattern of eating. So these changes to the gut microbiome are not lasting, but they only are there during periods of fasting. These marked changes induced by intermittent fasting included upregulation of butyric acid-producing lacnospirisae bacteria. Now, this provides a possible mechanism for the health benefits seen to intestinal health with intermittent fasting, because fasting allows the remodeling of our intestines. Essentially, it gives our intestines a break so that they can heal, which I went into, into detail previously in episode 95. But here in this study, the fact that they found that bacteria that produce butyric acid increased with fasting is an important finding because butyric acid is an important fuel source for our intestinal cells, which can promote the health of our intestinal cells and therefore our overall gut health and as a result our overall health. So the scientists conclude that intermittent fasting may beneficially alter our gut microbiome. So that is a wrap, my People Scientist Army, an update on some of the high-quality, very recent studies coming out in the last several months on intermittent fasting. I love this topic of fasting because it challenges nutritional dogma like nothing else has in the last several decades. This is the reason why I went into research, to challenge the dogma, to find out how we can make our daily lifestyle or our daily routines better so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. Because of its ability to change recommendations, a lot of studies are being published on fasting. In recent months, high-quality studies have been published to provide support that fasting is well-tolerated and may enhance chemotherapy effectiveness and tumor regression in breast cancer. That fasting may beneficially modulate the gut microbiome to enhance intestinal health and blood pressure. That fasting combined with vitamin C may be able to reduce cancer growth in colorectal cancer. That fasting may be able to provide benefit for weight loss. 
as a meta-analysis found significantly more weight loss with intermittent fasting versus just a low-calorie diet alone. I mean, in the end, a calorie deficit is necessary to lose weight, but intermittent fasting may be more manageable or effective and easier for people to follow. Therefore, it may lead to more weight loss for some. As I've mentioned in the previous episodes, fasting is not for everyone, particularly those predisposed to eating disorders, binge eating episodes, or the frail or elderly. Always seek the advice of your physician or dietitian. So that is it today, my people scientist army. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know I did, as this is one of my favorite topics to read into and research. If you don't already follow me on social media, you can find my handles in the description box because on social media, that is where I share some of the key papers that I cite in each episode. If you by chance want to buy me a coffee to say thanks for the episode, you can find out how to do that via the description box below. I hope you all have a wonderful week. And I look forward to meeting you all back here the same time and same place next week on the People Scientist podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.